Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paddling the Blue. We appreciate you tuning in today and truly appreciate the feedback that we've received so far on the podcast. The reviews have been really appreciated and keep them coming. So thank you very much. And we're glad that what we're doing is something that you're enjoying. Today's episode is going to feature Henry Davies. And Henry is a paddler from Michigan's Upper Peninsula. He uh, he paddles in the Upper Peninsula all around the Great Lakes. He guides up on Lake Superior, and Henry teaches at a number of symposiums around the Great Lakes as well. And uh, Henry seems to fit in one good-sized trip each year, and 2019 was no exception. So Henry, along with two others, Sharon Bustamante and Susan Gardner, took a trip to Lake Superior's eastern shoreline, and they paddled out to Mishpacatan Island. For those who aren't aware of Mishpacatan, Mishpacatan is the third largest island on Lake Superior. It's about 16 miles off the uh, shoreline of Lake Superior. And a lot of Henry's trips seem to favor at least one or more long crossings in them. And this one was no exception. So sit back and enjoy, and we're going to listen to Henry Davies. All right. Joining me today is Henry Davies. And uh, Henry d- did a recent trip to the Mishpacatan Island out on Lake Superior. Welcome, Henry. Hello. So thanks for joining us today on the, the Paddling the Blue podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your paddling background, Henry. Um, I've been sea kayaking since about 1990 and been canoeing before that since I was a kid. Um, I've been, almost all of my kayaking has been in the Great Lakes area, maybe some inland lakes, but a lot of it's on the bigger lakes as well. And in the last I don't know, 15 years I've been a sea kayak instructor, an ACA instructor. In the last five years, I've been a guide for a company up in, um, on Lake Superior in, in Munising area, in Pictured Rocks. And I've been doing some trips like this one we just did, um, Mishpacatan Island. I've probably done about 1,500 miles of those kind of trips on the Great Lakes. So Henry, tell us a little bit about Mishpacatan Island uh, and where it's located. So if you look at Lake Superior, there's a big peninsula that comes down on the Canadian side in the northeast end of the island or the, the lake. And if you go straight below that big peninsula, you'll see Mishpacatan Island out there about 10 miles off the shore. It's about 40 miles west of Wawa. Okay. And uh, what's the size of Mishpacatan Island? Well, it's, I think it was like 18, 17, 18 miles long and five miles high from north to south about 40 miles around it okay and what's some of the uh the unique features of the island itself um it's a lot of different kinds of rocks along there there's a lot of basalt it was part of the um oh what is it called but the the rift where um lake superior was formed when by vulcanization so lava coming out and in, in the basin and so you say lots of different different kinds of rock. Uh, is it mostly a low island, a, a higher island? It's it's pretty high. There's a lot of cliff faces along it and a lot of high um, inland cl- um, mountains, cliffs that you can see from the shore. But it's also very dense, wooded, so we didn't really get very far into the island. That wasn't our goal anyway. We were just going around it. Okay. And in, in terms of what's on the island? Um. There's not a lot on the island. I think it's been a, a provincial park since the 80s. 
There's some copper mines on it that weren't very successful, but there's like two or three of those. We didn't find the copper mines when we were going by. We were hoping to, but we, the day we went by where they would have been, it was pretty foggy and we didn't see anything that was obviously the place to land. Um, so that was unfortunate. The other thing is there's an old fishing camp there in um, Quebec Harbor with all of the buildings associated with that and several old wrecks of sh um, boats that are, were associated with that fishing enterprise. Hmm. Otherwise, there's not a lot of buildings on the island. There were okay. only things in Quebec Harbor and a few cottages in that area, but the rest of the island basically had nothing for buildings. A couple right. of lighthouses. But... Yeah, and there's, there's one lighthouse or more than one lighthouse on the island? There are two. Um, one of them's on the island, one's on a border island to the south. Yeah, we visited both of those. Okay. So tell us a little bit about, where did you start with the trip? Uh, we started from um, Naturally Superior Adventures at um, the Mishpacotan River. And there's basically that whole peninsula that I talked about as far, as far as locating Mishpacotan Island. There are no roads on that for about 100-some miles of shoreline. We had to work our way west from the Mishpacotan River to about 40 miles to where we could even consider crossing down to the island. That took us a couple days. So 40 miles of, of roadless land and then another 60 miles past that. And then once you got to the uh, the point where you cross, where is the point where you decided you're going to make your crossing from the mainland to Michigan Island? We were thinking about doing the crossing from the Petit Mort Rocks, but um, we made it to Floating Heart Bay which is about 40 miles from Michigan Cotton River. And we decided since the weather looked good now, instead of paddling for a few hours along the coast, we, instead of making the shortest crossing, we did about a 13 mile crossing and cut diagonally across from there. We tried to do it while we had good weather instead of seeing what the weather might do when we paddle an hour or so down the coast. Tell me uh, any, any wildlife on the island? We didn't see much on the island. We saw tracks on a lot of the beaches. Most of the beaches were gravel or um, cobbles or sand, but we saw tracks out there, and we think that they were like wolf tracks. All the wolves were supposedly taken off the island the previous fall, but how do they know if they got them all? And we also saw tracks that looked like they might have been caribou tracks. So same thing. All the caribou were supposedly off the island, but maybe there's one or two. Um, other than that, we saw birds, you know, gulls and eagles and mergansers. All right. And what was it that got you fired up to say, this is the trip we're going to take? About six years ago in 2013, the same group of us, there were three of us, we were paddling the Puckasaw Coast from Hattie Cove to Michigan River. And we were out at Otter Island and we we're like, what is that landmass off in the distance we see, you know, as far away as we can see? Are we seeing... Lake Superior Provincial Park, or what are we seeing? It was hard to understand the terrain from where we were. But we paddled several days from Otter Island down before we realized that what we were looking at was the coast of Michigan Island, about 10 miles off the mainland. So it was, I don't know, 40 or so miles from where we were when we first saw it. But that led us to say, well, we've got to do this someday. So then it took us you know, six years, and then we did it someday. And what did you enjoy most about the experience? Well, a couple of things. There's just such a variety of different kinds of rocks, especially in both uh, Michigan Island and in the Pacasa area. But also there, 
they're areas where you really just don't see a lot of other people necessarily. We, when we were on the island for our four days, we never saw another person. We didn't, I don't think anybody else was on the island for that period. And, and we were there in the beginning of August. So if it's going to be visited, I would have thought then, probably yeah. maybe July, but still. In addition to circumnavigating the island itself, um, tell me a little bit more about the trip. Well, our goal was primarily to visit the island, but we were also trying to figure out how we were going to fit that in because it's it takes a couple of days to get to where you can make the crossing, do the island a couple of days back. And one of the people on our trip was basically saying, well, I want to do the whole Puckasaw Coast again. And it's like, okay, let if we if everything aligns, we can probably do that, but we'll do the island. And if the weather's not helping us or we had trouble, we'll maybe come back to Michigan Cotton River. So a big part of the trip was also covering the whole Puckasaw Coast from, in this case, we went the opposite direction of last time. We went from Michigan Cotton River to Hattie Cove at the north end of Puckasaw Park. And it's just a really interesting area with a lot of different kinds of rocks. And you're just paddling along cliffs all the time, basically. That's really cool, different kinds of rocks. It's like every every hour you're looking at it. Well, that's different. So what are some of the unique features of the area in terms of the, the rocks, the, the topography, um, again, wildlife? The shore along the mainland is um, all the Canadian shield rocks. So that's very old. You see different kinds of granites and things. I'm not a geologist, so I'm sure I'll say the wrong kinds of rocks, but whatever. <laughs> that's all right. Um, we won't hold you to it. Whereas, yeah, whereas the island is a lot more basalt and more volcanic rock. And that was quite interesting. And like I said, every time you turn around, you're seeing different kinds of rocks. There's a, a point along there called Point Isaacor, which has just a really immensely tall cliffs and it's open to the uh, prevailing winds on the lake, the prevailing waves. And so that's an area you have to be very careful of. There's just no place to land for maybe like 10 miles. I'm not sure if that's quite right, but something close to that just a chance to be beat up by the waves if there are any. So, so the topology, there's a lot of cliffs. It's almost all cliffs. It, where the rivers come out, you get sand beaches or cobble beaches, that kind of thing. So you have a variety of places to camp between the cobbles and the sand and the gravel beaches. And um, as far as wildlife, this time we didn't see much in the way of wildlife, just birds. We did see a few otters that came out and visited us and wondered what we were doing. One of them was, he had caught a fish, so he was like showing it to us, really proud of his fish. It was funny. Proud of his catch. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned cliffs along the coast. Um, going back to the island for a second, you mentioned some cliffs earlier. What's the scale? Are we talking you know, 50 foot cliffs, 500 foot cliffs? What are, we looking, what are we looking at? The cliffs were mainly inland from the edge of the island. So it's kind of built up in the middle and then lower at the edge, but they're along the south side where we were at um, Devo, Devo Lighthouse. There were cliffs there. It rose up, I don't know, probably a couple hundred feet. And like Point Isaacor, I would guess, would be maybe three, five hundred feet high. And there are other cliffs along the mainland. The mainland cliffs were definitely taller in places anyway. All right. Is it, is it pretty easy to find places to camp along the coast and along the island itself? Yes and no. Uh, you have to give yourself time to do it. There was one day on the island where we went for a ways. We were going to camp at maybe Falls Harbor. And 
when we got there, it's like, yeah, this isn't really a camping place. The last place we saw was maybe two miles back. So we wound up, and then there was a, a little offshore island that we saw that's like, that could be a camping spot. We went out to the offshore island. It's like, no, nope, not a camping spot. So then we had to go back two miles to find a camping spot because it was getting later on the day. Kind of have to watch for them as you go and, and hope that you find something when you're ready to stop. Also on the mainland, we had a similar thing where we were paddling along and we kind of set a, a timeline for ourselves. We said, well, we're going to go till about 3.30. If we don't find an, a good camp spot, we'll turn around and head back because we basically paddled most of the day without finding a place to camp. And then 3.30 comes around. It's like, wow, this is a cool beach we just found. And so <laughs> just as we were, would have been turning around, we found what we wanted to camp at. That was north of Puckasaw. If you stay in Puckasaw and the Crown Lands around between Hattie Cove and Mishapakotten, there's you can look at people's blogs and um, trip notes, and you'll find lots of places where people have camped. And there's a, there's um, a Puckasaw map that tells you different camping locations. So there, it's a little easier. There's a lot more knowns. Where the island and outside of Puckasaw, it's a little more difficult. There's less information. You mentioned Crown Land. Um, is, is everything up there Crown Land? The park itself, well, the two parks. One, Puckasaw is a national park that has camping permits that you get through the park. Um, between the Puckasaw River and Mishapakotten River is Crown Land. It's owned by the government. Mishapakotten Island is a provincial park, but it's not set up as a park. It's owned as a park, but there are no park facilities, something like that. So that's kind of treated as crown land as well, which means you have to get crown land permits to camp there if you're not a Canadian citizen or don't and don't own Canadian property. So you have to so you have to have either a Canadian citizen with you or get a specific crown land permit for that space. Yeah. Okay. And then for each night of camping. And then for Puckasaw National Park, uh, there are separate permitting requirements for that as well. Yeah. Then you get the permit through the park itself for the days that you're going to be in the park. And for either of those, do you have to get those in person or you can you get those online or by mail or anything like that? You can do those online. Um, the park, Parkasaw Park, it's confusing because we didn't know when we were going to get into Parkasaw Park because we didn't know what the weather was going to do. We kind of paid for it after the fact, which is not the way you're supposed to do it. But um, they yelled at us and took our money. So I guess we're okay. During the trip, what kind of distance did you put on each day on average? We did about 240 miles in 14 days. We we averaged, I think, 17 miles a day. I don't think we did any days that were much over like 22 miles or something like that. So it was pretty much the same amount of miles every day. Our shortest day was probably 12 or 14 miles. And our longest was probably 22 or 24 Right, so nothing too aggressive, a nice, uh, nice casual and comfortable pace then? We tend to do a lot of exploring, so paddling the coast and seeing what's all there. So there's a lot of slowing down, taking pictures, looking at things. We're not there to make distance. Uh, anything that surprised you along the way that you just didn't expect? I think that the fact that we saw less um, uh, animals and so on, it seemed like we saw less birds than last time. And maybe it's a different year, different weather, that kind of thing. This season was nowhere near as wet as this, the year we did it in 2013. So 
that leads to some of the other things that surprised us, which was how much different the river flows were, how much different it was, how much water was flowing over the different waterfalls and so on this year than, than the, in the previous trip. We kind of wondered how much would the lake level being so much higher, how much effect that would have on our trip, but it really didn't seem to make a difference to us. Yeah, you mentioned before that uh, the first time you did the trip, it was 2013, is that correct? Yes. All right. And if I'm not mistaken, water was pretty close to its lowest level in, in many years at that point. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. And now you're at a point where you go in 2019 and water's at some of its highest levels, at, uh, highest levels ever almost. Uh, but you said that didn't really seem to affect uh, the trip that much? Not, not in terms of finding camping spots and things like that. What affected us more was in 2013, it was like so much rain that all the rivers were at flood stage. We just didn't know it at the time that they were at flood stage. We'd never been there. We assumed that was kind of normal. But like there's a Denison Falls is a falls on the Dog River. We had trouble getting to that falls because basically the, where the trail goes was underwater. That was in 2013. This time around, it's like, well, this is where we were supposed to be last time. No wonder it was different. It was easy to walk here this time. Just a totally different environment. And then there's an upper falls. It's like falls down 300 feet before it gets to the falls we could get to last time. And we couldn't get to that upper falls because it wasn't going to be safe. Where this time we got to see it and just look at it and go, I wonder what that looked like in 2013. It had to be really impressive. Now, are there any uh, any guidebooks that give you more information on the area? There's a book on, or on Bishop Cotton Island that is out of print, so it's hard to get at. Sharon got access to a copy of it, but she said it didn't have a ton of information in it. Um, there's another book, Superior Under the Shadow of the Gods, has some information about the islands as well. And then there's the standard Lake Superior um, sea kayaking book has some information on the picture, or not the picture, the Puckasaw Park in Michigan Island, I believe. Sea Kayak and Lake Superiors and Lake Superior in Michigan. I'll be sure to put information on those two books in the show notes for this so listeners can get more information on those at a later point. Are both of those still in print, do you know? Uh, yeah, they're both are, I'm pretty sure. Uh, the sea Kayak and Lake Superior in Michigan, I haven't looked to see if it's still in print, but it's a pretty standard book that everybody who does any tripping in the Great Lakes probably has a copy. Yeah, even if it's not on print, it's still available uh, in used sources. I've seen that probably. one. Probably. actually have it in my library right here as well. Yeah, I've probably had this for 20 years. So who knows? So how did you mentally and physically prepare for the trip? Mentally, I guess somewhat because we're talking about long crossings. And part of it was um, we did a trip the year before, so in 2018, that involved a bunch of long crossings. We had visited a bunch of the islands in um, northern part of Lake Michigan. And we had four crossings that were 11 or 10 miles. So that helped us get our feel for crossings. Some of those were in fog. Some of those, the wind picked up when we were in the middle of the crossing, that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of it was just making sure we were all okay. If the weather picks up um, and we just wind up on the island for a while, we're just not gonna finish getting to Hattie Cove. We'll turn around and come back to Michigan River and. That's the trip we were planning to do anyway. So that's part of it. And then I lost my train of thought. Uh, the physical preparation for the trip. So for me, that's kind of comes for free in the spring. I have to get ready, go out, do a bunch of paddling. And then I'm training guides on Lake Superior. We're doing rescues in May in Lake Superior when there might still be ice. There's definitely ice on shore. There might still be ice floating around. 
so from that point on through the summer, I'm paddling. It's not a big deal. The other thing I do, I do some snowshoeing during the year and, and I heat the house with wood. So I split a lot of wood and cut a lot of wood. Those are my activities, I guess. So those are your cross training activities. Tell me a little bit about the equipment that you used on the trip. We all had, we all had night, uh, Nigel Dennis kayaks. I think, I, I, I think Susan had a, she's got a, a, a valley now, but we've done these paddled together. This was our fourth trip together. The three of us, we all used tents. We weren't sure that hammocks were going to be easy to set up if the, the woods would be too dense or how, you know, how difficult that would be. So instead of worrying about it, we just all brought tents. We knew that worked. We had a couple stoves in case there's any issues. You've got a backup. So one of them was propane or, you know, propane. One was white gas. So they're different kinds of stoves. We had a couple different water filters. So if we have issues, we've got a backup, that kind of thing. Repair kits. This time we didn't have to repair anything on our trip. So that was great. That's always good. Usually we get to get out the repair kit and do something. All of us are Greenland paddlers. So we had that's what we had was Greenland paddles. We all had our one, our Greenland paddle and our spare Greenland paddle. Excellent. So you mentioned uh, a couple of stoves. Uh, tell me some uh, favorite favorite camp meals that you had along the way. Sharon is a really good cook. She's kind of the camp gourmet. My stuff is kind of make something, try it, and bring the same things on every trip I go on because that's what I do. Susan was the one who caught us a fish our first day out when we were at the Dog River. and So that's we had Northern Pike that first night on the dog at the mouth of the Dog River. So that's one of them, my favorite, I guess. It was the most interesting one. It was getting dark, trying to eat through, get rid of the bones. And Sharon had something that was on the order of a Thai curry dish. So that was really good. Yeah, fishing for me is I'm, I'm okay at the fishing part of it. It's the catching part that I always have trouble with. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I haven't been a fisherman since I was a kid. Uh, my dad likes to fish a lot. And I used to be the trolling motor in the canoe when I was a kid. So gotcha. I just was into paddling. So if others were interested in replicating the trip, doing something similar, um, what, what steps might they take? You have to be careful about your plans as far as, you know, there, like I said, there's no roads there. There's no real access. We, I think we saw a few boats, I mean, bigger boats on, on our first day. We, I think we saw or the first couple of days we saw one while we were on the island. We saw no one. So your VHF radio may not even be able to get you help because you're not going to, being a, a kayaker, or per, you know, you don't have a big log antenna. So you have to be self-sufficient and be prepared for things. Um, the crossings, you just have to think about 10 or 12 mile crossing is somewhere like three to four, four and a half hours of paddling with no place to get out. You either have to make the crossing or turn around and go back. You can't just stop in the middle of the lake if the weather changes in that time. You've got to be careful about the, the weather and what it's doing. Unfortunately, the weather forecasts are not terribly robust along there. Being careful about the weather is kind of difficult. When we paddled back from the island, we got a forecast that said something like there'll be thunderstorms in the late afternoon. And we looked around, the clouds looked okay-ish and everything. It was a bit breezy, but not too bad. We got out from the island a ways and the waves started to pick up to about two feet because they were no longer in the shelter of the island. But then when we got to the mainland, shortly after we got to the mainland, we started to get thunderstorms. So late afternoon in Canada comes about 12, 15, 12, 45. And also if we'd have stayed on the island that day, the next two or three days wouldn't have been days we could have made the crossing. We'd have been stuck on the island for a couple more days. 
it's a good thing you got off then. Made the crossing. Yeah, we made the crossing when we had to because the next day had like 20 knot winds and the day after that had five foot waves. And you mentioned you started at Mishpacotten River at um, uh, Naturally Superior Adventures. Is that what you said? Right. Yeah. All right. So did you drop a car there and then uh, get a shuttle back from Hattie Cove or how does that how does that whole process work? Our process worked different than most people. We happened, I happened to mention that we were going to do this trip to um, someone at, I forget, at Door County or, or at Graham Ray at the symposium. And he, he, one of the other coaches at the event, and he said, well, I may be able to help you out. It turns out that he was going to start from Hattie Cove and paddle to Mishapakotten River. He's starting the same day we were planning on ending. So basically what we did is left a car there at, at Naturally Superior, and then they used the car to drive from Naturally Superior to Hattie Cove and then dropped it off for us. So we didn't have, they didn't need to drop a car someplace that they couldn't use, and we didn't need to worry about how to get our car. So it all worked out just magically, but <laughs> never can plan that. Yeah, that's certainly pretty convenient. Yeah. And so you mentioned you only saw a few people along the way. I'm guessing those are some of the very few people that you saw along the way as you, you crossed paths? No, actually, um, they started the same day we finished, so we oh. didn't cross paths. Ah, okay. All right, so I'm, I missed that. And then you said, uh, so if you put in at Naturally Superior Adventures, where do you take out up at, uh, at Hattie Cove? Well, Hattie Cove is the, the driving campground of Puckasaw National Park. It's the only drive-in part of the park. So, yeah, we paddled into the cove there and took out. We actually got there two or three days early, so then we just paddled north of the park and did some more exploring towards Marathon to, because our car wasn't going to be there. We weren't going to be able to leave early. So so for those who aren't as fortunate to have somebody dropping a car uh, for them, it, can anybody leave a car at Hattie Cove, or what's the protocol for doing so? Yeah, you can do that. There's parking lots there. We did that when we um, did the trip in 2013. We left a car there and won it um, naturally superior. And then when we got to Mishapakotten River, we just drove back and got the car we left. Um, it, Or you can naturally superior will do a shuttle for you. It's just you probably want to do it the other way around from what we did. If you start at Hattie Cove, they can drive you up, drop you off, and br- leave your car back at their spot. And then they, they're using your car to go back and forth. Whereas if you start at Bishop Cotton and go to Hattie Cove, they've got to drive two cars up to drop one off to come back. And then it gets way more expensive. What advice might you give to someone who's planning a similar trip? I like to think about things in you know mileage in, and my average speed. It means hours. So things like a crossing of 10 miles. If we're averaging three and a half miles an hour, that's three hours that the weather can change for us. And then think about it. Do we have three hours for the weather? What's the weather going to do in three hours? Do we have good three hours to make that crossing? Or since we did the diagonal crossing going over, it was more like four or some hours because we did a 12, almost 13 mile crossing. What is everybody's skill set? Do we all know how to get back in our boats if something happens? Do we all know everybody else's skill set? How good is everybody at just not just paddling, but camping and um, rescues and just helping each other out? If something goes wrong, what are we gonna what are we gonna do? What are our backup plans? If 
we can't find a campsite. The wind, the wind picks up. We're not making progress. So there's a lot of, in, in addition to planning what we want to do, there's also planning what we might have to do that's different. You know, what are our backup plans? Yeah, if you're going to spend 10 days in the, in the backcountry with somebody that uh, you don't know, you know in, your, in your case, you were spending this time with people you've already done trips with. But for those who might be thinking about going out and doing a trip uh, and a trip with people that they've not paddled with before, you know, making sure that those expectations are aligned, that you know each other's skills yeah. and you can rely on each other is certainly a critical piece. And when we did this trip in 2013, that was the first time we'd ever paddled together. So, of course, we went on a 12-day trip together. Yeah. Do you uh, do you carry a spot device or anything like that? You mentioned that the coverage for a radio was, was pretty light there. We all carry inReach, so we can do bidirectional communication, basically satellite-based texting. In in my case, I've had issues before where if I, I left a float plan said, I'm going to get to this place on Wednesday. If I'm not there, whatever, then I might need help. And somehow... They were calling the park service on Wednesday morning at midnight instead of Wednesday night at eight in the evening, like I intended. So then I had to get us in reach so I can make sure. Yeah, I'm good. I'm hell. I'm, I'm fine. I'm here. I'm fine. I'm here. Make sure that it's always known where I am. You know, once you get seven, eight days out, how does anybody know where you are if you don't do that? You had mentioned uh, your your guiding experience up on uh, Lake Superior in the Munising area. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you do up there. Basically, it's day trips, so we give people a bit of a lesson how to paddle a kayak. A lot of the people haven't paddled before or haven't paddled on Lake Superior before. And then it's keeping the group together, making sure everybody stays safe, watching the weather, telling them about the history and the different features of the rocks and so on. Year-long pictured rocks, is that what you said? Yeah, pictured rocks. So we have different trips, whether they're, it's either a half day or a full day, but no overnight trips there. We don't guide overnight trips. Now, I know there was a, a heavily publicized rock fall in 2019. If I'm not mistaken, weren't you uh, in a boat at the time? I was, but I was on the, I was almost to Mishapakotten River. Oh, I okay. Mean, or no, no, I was almost to Hattie Cove because that was the end of our trip. Um, okay. So you weren't guiding at that, the time when that group was out there? No, but those were guides I had trained. Ah, Okay. All right. Yeah, they certainly got a, an awful lot of press for being out there, and um, and they made it made it safely and uh, did did well with their groups. Yeah. Apparently, they saw sand falling and said, "Let's move away from the cliffs." And then bigger stuff than sand fell. Good plan. So, Henry, what's the next trip you've got planned? Well, when we were getting, we were almost uh, what between Hattie Cove and Marathon, which is a, a town north of um, Puckasaw Park. We could look out there and we could see Pick Island, and when it, and we could see the Slate Islands out on the horizon. They're about 30 miles out. So then we were saying, yep, that's what we need to do next. It's just, do we? how do we do this? Are we going to go paddle one way and or go out and back or something like that? But we haven't really discussed it yet. I think that's one of the next things we're going to do is more of the North Shore of Lake Superior. So have you been out there before or that's well, this will be the first time? It'll be the first time paddling that section. All right. What's unique about Pick Island and the Slate Islands? Pick Island, um, well, Pick Island is is a it's a very tall island from what we could tell. Apparently, there's not much place to land, from what I've read. Um, so it, it's interesting how it's right there. It looks like it's pretty close to shore, but it just sort of jumps up out of the lake. And the Slate Islands are 
the result of a meteor strike, which brought up, you know, molten rock and created the islands. That's kind of an interesting place to go. Also, that's where almost all of the caribou still on Lake Superior are anymore is on the Slate Islands. There used to be a whole bunch of caribou on Michigan Island, but then the wolves got there, I don't know, five years ago, and then they disappeared, and so they got moved off the year before we paddled out there. Where did they move them to? They moved a bunch of them to the Slate Islands, and they moved some of them to Caribou Island, um, which is about 40 miles from anywhere in Lake Superior. We talked a little bit about, can we paddle to Caribou Island? But yeah, sharing the voice of reason was like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> because it would be a 20-mile crossing each way. Ah, uh, So, Henry, how, can, uh, how, could re- how could listeners reach you if they have additional questions or are interested in this paddle or, or any other paddles for that matter? Well, you can find me on Facebook. You can follow me. I don't generally accept friendships from people I don't know, and I tend to forget because I meet a lot of people in the summer. Or you can email me at ckayaker at gmail.com, S-E-E dot kayaker at gmail.com. And uh, Henry, I know that you've posted a lot of pictures in the uh, Inland Seas uh, Kayaking the Great Lakes Facebook group as well. So for any listeners who might be members of that group, uh, you'll see occasionally see Henry pop up in there. And I know I've, I've followed a lot of your pictures and a lot of your trips in there as well. Thanks. You're welcome. Henry, who else do you think might be a great guest for us to have on the Paddling the Blue podcast? So Susan, Susan Gardner is um, one of the people who was on this trip. She's also on the previous Puckasaw trip, and I've done this is a fourth trip I've done with her. But she's done a lot of other trips outside of the Great Lakes area that have been like six weeks long, things like that. One, I think, was the Yukon River, and one was the Haida Gwaii area. So she definitely has some different aspects to things as well. That sounds great. I'll be sure to collect the contact information from you for uh, for Sharon, or Susan, sorry, and uh, we'll go from there. Henry, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it, and it was great hearing about your trip to Mishpacotten Island uh, from the Mishpacotten River, circumnavigating the island, and then on up to, on up to uh, Hattie Cove. We certainly wish you the best on your uh, trips in the future and that trip to Pick Island and the Slate Islands. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.